Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's weekly podcast on the big stories shaping the region. My name is Amran Zaman, and I'll be looking at the December 23rd murders of three ethnic Kurdish activists in Paris. Police have blamed the attack on a 69-year-old Frenchman with a criminal record and a history of hostility towards foreign migrants. But the Kurdish community is pointing fingers at the Turkish state. A decade ago, three prominent Kurdish women activists were murdered in Paris by a Turkish man who was later established to have ties to Turkey's national intelligence agency known as MIT. Over the past decade, MIT has grown in power, becoming a central pillar in the government of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. MIT is a lethal tool in covert operations across Europe and the Middle East. With us here today to discuss this oversized role is Guillaume Perrier, co-author of a recent book on MIT's long arm in Europe called Les Loups aiment la brume, or The Wolves Like the Mist. Turkey's ultra-nationalists, who historically have been influential in the security services, often refer to themselves as grey wolves, the mythical she-wolf from the Central Asian steppes, which the Turkish race supposedly sprung from. So welcome to our show, Guillaume. It's wonderful to have you here with us today. Thank you, Amerin. So you cut your holiday short to return to Paris to cover this mysterious affair. What is the latest, Guillaume? We are still uh, waiting for more elements, uh, to be to be honest, because the, the judge uh, formally opened a court case on Monday morning. So we are just three days after the, the opening of this case. At the moment, not so many, so much information came out from uh, from the uh, prosecutors and uh, and judges and uh, French authorities are uh, seem to be a little bit uh, uncomfortable with the situation. And after two days of um, mediatization of the case. Uh, uh, French uh, news channels have uh, already shifted to other uh, other news, and uh, to be honest, we don't talk anymore about the case. So the the last information we had, uh, the official version of the uh, last Friday's attack, is that uh, the attacker was a 69 year old uh, retired uh, train driver. Um, he was uh, presented uh, like a lone wolf racist uh, guy without any political connection uh, to any group or any ideology, which is a bit surprising. But at the same time, um, he explained things uh, that don't fit much with the, the official version. For example, he seemed to have an idea about the Kurds. Uh, he wanted to target Kurds, apparently, uh, and he said to the prosecutor that uh, he was angry at Kurds because they didn't fight enough against ISIS. Uh, so it looks like a strange justification of a racist lone wolf attacker who is supposed to 
be motivated by racism. Uh, well, it's very and- bizarre, particularly since uh, that accusation is more often leveled against Turkey rather than the Kurds. We all know that, in fact, the Kurds were at the forefront of that campaign against the Islamic State, played a pivotal role in helping defeat the territory, I mean, the caliphate as a sort of territory. Um, so it is, as you say, very peculiar. And we all know that the Kurdish community absolutely does not see this as a lone wolf attack. Can you tell us why? Of course, uh, they don't buy the official version uh, and they have good reasons for that, uh, to be honest, uh, because of the uh, case of uh, Sakine Johnson and uh, three Kurdish activists who were murdered 10 years ago. Um, 9th of January, so ten, two weeks later, uh, it will be the 10th anniversary of that murder. And that murder uh, is still um, unsolved, uh, even if the hand of uh, Turkish secret services appeared uh, quite clearly in the investigation. Uh, so there is today uh, no doubt anymore about uh, the fact that uh, 10 years ago uh, it was uh, an operation from Turkish secret services. They used uh, Omer Gunay, who was a young nationalist, militant, um, a Turkish guy living in Germany with his family, immigrating to France, who presented himself like a cur- young Kurd who wanted to go back to his roots. Uh, It appeared that he was manipulated by the Turkish secret services. And 10 years later, the investigation is still going on. And it's not- And he actually died in prison, right? And it's still unclear how he died, really. Nobody believed the story, right? That it was of natural causes. No, no, for sure it's uh, it's true. He had a brain tumor uh, before uh, being um uh, missioned by by the meat to to commit his murder so uh, it was pretty clear that he would die in prison i mean and most probably he was chosen because he had a brain tumor and he had a limited uh time to leave uh, oh really i missed this that was, this was the plan uh-huh well um in this case they picked perhaps, again, somebody who was mentally unstable, so created some plausible deniability, right? But we have no proof of that. And as you say, the French authorities are certainly not treating it in the same way, are they? And why is that so? Are there any political reasons for that in your view? Yes. So, as you said, there is absolutely no uh, single element, no single clue that could connect uh, last Friday's attack to uh, Turkish secret services. So uh, that's why Turkish government pretends to be angry at the reaction in France, because they feel like it's it's a fake accusation and to be honest, there is no element to, to connect Turkey to, to the crime. It could also be, and Kurdish community says that uh, it could be the sign of a, a success, successful operation. Uh, if you cannot connect it to the Turkish secret services. Unlike the last uh, time. 
got their targets. Uh, this is what they think, but we are more talking about beliefs than facts, to be honest. Uh, but you cannot say to Kurdish community that it's not possible that Turkish secret services is behind because this is what happened 10 years ago. And until now, to be honest, French state is covering up the case uh, to keep good relations with Turkish government, uh, not to inflame relations that are already tense between Macron and Erdogan. So business as usual, Kurds are... Um, in the middle of uh, real politic uh, relations. Well, I mean, going back to 10 years ago, why that happened, you know, there are several uh, theories about why those women were murdered. One was that it was an effort on the part of a section of the deep state to derail the Kurdish peace process. Another theory was that it was meant to intimidate uh, the Kurds during those talks, an effort to show them what Turkey could do if they didn't play along. Um, I'm not sure which of those theories you believe or if you believe any of them, but in any case, it's an interesting time, right? Because we're facing elections. Erdogan needs the Kurdish vote if he's to win. Anyone who wants to win needs the Kurdish vote. Uh, could we be in a similar situation where perhaps this is again some kind of message to uh, the Kurdish political leadership of the consequences they might face if they're not cooperative, and in particular, Abdullah Öcalan. Um, what do you think? I try not to believe in theories, you know. Uh, uh -huh. I try to... We've okay. lived in Turkey all these years. How can we not? <laughs> Yeah, but uh, theories are uh, theories. Uh, I try to be facts. Um, and uh, yes, there are similarities between 10 years ago and today. Uh, we live a very political moment uh, in Turkey, uh, as you explained, where uh, um, Kurdish vote uh, is the target uh, of uh, political um uh, strategies, uh, because obviously uh, anyone who wants to defeat Erdogan in next elections needs to uh, secure uh, the most uh, Kurdish votes possible. So uh, there is uh, something, and we saw reactions from Turkey. It was very interesting. Ali Babajan sent a message of condolence, and yes. then Kemal had to react also. So we see that you know, this table of six people, uh, they are not all uh, on the same line on the Kurdish issue. So there could be a game uh, there to, uh, but this is an interpretation. Um, I, I want just to, to remain focused on facts and the way 2013 was a way to derail the peace process, because this is what it is. Our investigation in our book, uh, as you know, we had the chance to interview Feyaz Osturk, who... Uh, yes, a uh, fascinating figure. Yeah, he, he introduced himself as a, a former meat agent, uh, um, a defector, uh, let's say, who was uh, commissioned by a group inside the meat uh, in 2017, to uh, harass uh, Gulenists, uh, to uh, 
build a fake accusation against Osman Kavala also. Huh? Um, yes. And in the end, he was uh, sent to Vienna uh, to attack and kill or injure uh, Barry Van Aslan, who is a famous uh, Austrian politician from uh, Kurdish origin. Feyaz Osturk told that uh, also had a lot of information about 2013 case. Um, he helped us to understand who was the group uh, who uh, commanded the operation. And it appeared that it was a, it was a cell inside the meat, uh, a group of uh, uh, people from Samsun, from the Black Sea, who were very important people in the Grey Wolves organigram. Uh, one of them, two of them actually were brothers, uh, and one of them were, was the, the, the former head of uh, Ulkur Jacklare. Uh, those two brothers were used to be uh, bodyguards for uh, Alpaslan Turkish, okay, in the 90s. Um, but hang on, Guillaume, we are throwing a lot of names at the audience here. Alpaslan Turkish was leader of Turkey's far-right National Action Party, which is now allied with Erdogan. The Grey Wolves are its youth branch, which was involved in violence against left-wingers, but against other groups, including Kurds, Armenians, and the Ülke Ocakları, other local clubs, if you will, where these Grey Wolves congregate and organize. So this group, uh, according to Feyyaz Turk, was behind the 2013 uh, attack uh, and behind the recruitment of uh, Omer Gunay. Uh, he was recruited at a cafe in Ankara near Kojatepe Mosque uh, that was the headquarter of that group and uh, of uh, Grey Wolves in Ankara. So according to this source again uh, we we have to be cautious with sources in turkey but according to this source uh, he gave many details many uh, many uh, information about the the connections between those people um, according to this source this group was at the origin of the 2013 attack and it was uh, coming from inside the state but from an extreme radical uh, group inside the state. In 2013, MHP, the Grey Wolves, were not yet allied to Erdogan, right? So they were not so pleased with the peace process going on. And uh, we know that at that time, they, they were really angry. They put pressure on Erdogan for that. And uh, we can think that a part of the Turkish state resisted again uh, so against... this is the first theory it chimes with the first theory rather than the one of trying to intimidate to bully yeah. but that, both are possible, both are possible. <laughs> um absolutely but we can also i mean remind people our audience of the fact that the turkish military was also extremely opposed to this peace opening as was fetullah gulen and exactly. I heard this with my own ears because in 2013, uh, the Gulenists were taking groups of journalists to meet with him. And that was more about laying the ground, uh, you know, for this big investi corruption investigation that was going to be revealed and sort of, I guess, trying to rally the media around them. And during that meeting with Gulen, you know, I had the impression that I was speaking to the chief of Turkish general staff when I heard the way in which he was you know, maligning uh, the peace process, calling it a threat to Turkey's national security and uh, all of that. 
So, it, you know, there were many forces arrayed against this peace process. You are right. You are right. There were many, many forces against this peace process. And uh, this is why Erdogan also have always said after 2015, he said that Gulenists were behind it, uh, if you remember. So, um, well, that's the safe way of dealing with it. The, I mean, just blame it, blaming them alone. I mean, surely it, they were involved, but yeah. you know, he's trying to keep his relationship with the military on an even keel because clearly he was very spooked by that attempted coup that was obviously not just Gulenist, but contained other elements in the army, I'm guessing. I mean, um, indeed. But to get back to the broader issue of all this sort of um, activity, uh, overseas activity of the MIT, and the way in which MIT has evolved, and particularly after the coup, and become one of the main pillars of this regime, as you described it, um, that's really quite um astonishing in a way, isn't it? The latitude that MIT's been given. Can we talk a little bit about that and tie it in with, you know, your book and this guy Oesturk and what he described about those activities and his assignment in Austria that you touched upon earlier and how that illustrates this sort of power of MIT and this license it's been given the Vienna story was uh, to to us a unique uh, opportunity to 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 see in details the these networks that we were talking about since years, but without having much uh, elements to 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 describe them, to portray them. Uh, so it was uh, it was a really unique opportunity. So. Um, I started investigating, and uh, investigating means also having uh, uh, judicial sources in those countries, starting to 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 get um, political reports uh, in countries like Austria, Germany, Sweden. Um, the the state transparency uh, is a good, uh, very interesting tool for journalists because we have access to some documents that we cannot have access to in France, for example, but uh, like um, uh, secret services reports, yearly reports, uh, which says a lot about uh, the activities of Turkish secret services. For example, they counted 22 uh, cases of uh, spying uh, in 2020 and 2021. In two years in Germany, you had 22 uh, cases opened by prosecutors for spying against meat activities. Uh, this is fact. Um, doesn't mean all 22 cases will finish in front of courts, of course. But, but were these uh, directed at the Turkish-Kurdish diaspora communities, mainly, these spying activities? Mainly, but it could be other nationals. Uh, and Feyaz Öztürk told me also that don't think that all Turkish meat agents are Turks. Uh, we have people from uh, New Zealand, Uruguay, or from uh, Norway. And this is a good uh, remark uh, that can uh, echo to last, uh, last week's Paris attacks also, because MIT is able to recruit and to use any any foreigner, any national for his own activities. And I have 
I got names from Europeans who cooperated with Mint in Europe also. So don't be surprised if it's an international uh, network. As you point out in the book, MIT has evolved into this sprawling network with brand new facilities, a huge budget and greater license than ever before. To what extent do you believe Hakan Fidan, the head of MIT, has shaped the new face of this seemingly omnipotent organization? He is obviously uh, the, the black box, as Erdogan said. He's, uh, he's uh, the, the guard of his secrets. So uh, he is the guy who, who made what MIT is today. Uh, he's at the head of MIT since uh, more than 12 years. Uh, nobody had the opportunity to stay so long uh, uh, as a director of MIT. Um, Yes, he is. Uh, and he's, I mean, he's unique in that he's neither a former military guy nor a former diplomat or bureaucrat, which is who MIT directors were till, till he came also, along, correct? Yeah, yeah, a very exactly. different kind of background. And, and he's a Kurd, right, from Van. He's a Kurd from Van, exactly. So who is Hakan Fidan exactly? Does he have a particular ideology or none at all? What does he stand for? Uh, it's hard to say, but uh, he's he's the he's the close guy of Erdogan, and he made meet uh, a person, a kind of personal guard of Erdogan. Uh, meet uh, meet used to be an institution in Turkey, and what Feyyaz Öztürk and many sources told me that meet doesn't act anymore as a state institution of Turkey, but a personal guard for the president and his close collaborators. So it became more a personal interest uh, than, than state institution again. And this is why we have this kind of uh, mafia style uh, connections with uh, people who are not really agents. This is what Feyyaz Öztürk uh, is angry at, and he denounced that uh, MIT is evolving to a mafia-like organization more than a state institution, and he wants MIT to be back to um, reasonable um, strategies, uh, conducting... Uh, um, uh, um, uh, state security oriented policies and not uh, mafia-like uh, fake accusations. So what, what would be an example of a mafia-like operation that MIT conducted according to Feyyaz? Uh, the example, he, he, he says that he was commissioned by a group inside the MIT to kill Barry Van Aslan. Uh, he and, says that, but that's oh, nothing new, is it? I mean, Asala targets were on MIT's hit list. In, also in the 80s um so it's not like but, the turkish state hasn't been targeting people uh, on foreign soil before no this is true uh but he says that these groups are not acting like he used to do before you know oh, uh, they did it better uh, in a more it, legal way it can be a justification but uh he, he notes that there are uh, changes of methods inside the institution that people are not um, uh, trained and uh, educated like they used to be before. The same critics uh, happen in, inside Turkish army or Turkish police. Uh, we, we should see the larger picture, the of whole course. 
security institution have been taken back by Erdogan's guys and mostly far-right nationalists, uh, grey wolves. And this is true for the diaspora in Europe also. So when you look at the meat networks in Europe, they use the diaspora organizations can be religious, it can be political uh, organization or social activities also. This is how they use and they have the, the chance to benefit from thousands of uh, elements in Europe. In Germany only, uh, this is in the public report of uh, German uh, services, they, the MIT has 6,000 informants in Germany only. So this is huge. No, no foreign agencies has such a, such a work power in Europe, to be honest. But the new, really new element is this um, this fleet of drones they have, and that they use to assassinate mainly Kurdish targets. Uh, MIT did not have that in the past. They were not in possession of <laughs> drones military equipment yes, yes and that's very interesting in terms of how that plays with the turkish military does it cause tension does the military feel that part of its own authority has been ceded to mit does it feel like um it's not kept you know fully informed of what mit does when it comes to these attacks against Kurdish targets. I mean, what has been the impact of that, aside from the fact that a lot of people are getting killed, including civilians, women and children, as we've seen in Syria and in Iraqi Kurdistan? Yeah, especially in Syria, northern Syria, we had uh, more than 70 drone attacks in uh, 2022. So it's uh, it's huge. It's really huge. Uh, as they say, targeted assassinations became really frequent uh, and meat is behind um, all of them mostly it says so it says so it's yeah. Public. yeah 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 so we see that um, as you said uh, Turkish army doesn't have the monopoly of uh, military violence military operations anymore and this could be a source of tensions between uh, meat and the army of course but I don't think it is anymore today because uh, we see that uh, Minister of Defense uh, is accepted the way Turkish Erdogan reorganized the security apparatus. So uh, there's no, I don't think there is no more tension uh, around that. We see that Ministry of Defense was in Moscow yesterday to meet the head of uh, Syrian uh, uh, Syrian uh, security services. Um, Akar is okay with this policy now, but we, we, we should understand that MIT is uh, leading these uh, foreign policy military operations against the Kurds uh, more than Turkish army. Uh, and this is true also for the organization of um, uh, SNA, uh, Syrian National Army, which is a group of uh, post-jihadis, uh, militia, uh, Islamist militia, um, organized by Sadat. Sadat is a paramilitary group uh, close to Erdogan. And 
Mitty's uh, directing the, 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 the training and uh, Mitty's organizing the, the relations between uh, Turkish uh, forces and, uh, and this SNA. It's not just Kurdish activists or Kurdish militants that Mitty is targeting, but journalists and others as well. In Europe, we see especially uh, journalists affiliated with the Gulen movement being physically attacked in places like Germany and Sweden, and they clearly believe that those attacks were instigated by um, MIT. And we've also had the illegal renditions of Gulenis, who were basically kidnapped overseas and brought home, held in black sites, uh, tortured. So that's happening as well. Yes, uh, there are many cases. As you know, last year, a list of 55 people circulated also. They were uh, journalists, Kurdish activists, Gulenists. Um, Sweden is an interesting case because, as you know, uh, it's uh, Sweden is a candidate for NATO and uh, Turkey is putting the pressure on Swedish government to send back some of those uh, journalists or uh, activists uh, some of them got political asylum in uh, in Sweden. Uh, and what is interesting in, is that uh, Turkish pressure uh, put on Swedish government forces the change of laws like the uh, tradition of asylum that we have in Sweden. It starts to change. And it's really interesting. It's under Turkish pressure that they started to change. And they sent back, in, in the beginning of December, they sent back Mahmoud Tat, who was a political refugee, a Kurdish militant from PKK. And he was sent back to Turkey and probably now in prison. So there are results. Uh, and Turkey uh, is quite successful with this policy. And it could be seen, uh, I mean, more violent attacks could be seen as another way to put the pressure on European countries. But they also use the Turkish media to intimidate journalists. You know, some of us have been actual victims, targets of that. So they operate in various at various levels um, at, with various intensity. And it can be lethal. It can be just to scare you. Um, but overall, we can safely say that Turkey's National Intelligence Organization uh, is a power unto itself, reporting directly to Erdogan and with really very little, if any, accountability to anybody else. Exactly, exactly. And um, they, they probably have correspondence in all mainstream Turkish media. Uh, we saw recently a reporter from uh, Sabah Daily, uh, a team from them, spent weeks in Sweden uh, to uh, document uh, the places where uh, people uh, uh, were living, following them, and they, they published headlines and uh, uh, captured uh, photographs uh, of, of those people in, in, the, in the Turkish press. So they act like uh, agents more than journalists, to be honest. A very sad state of affairs. <laughs> well, thank you so very, very much, Guillaume, for this thank fascinating you. conversation. And also congratulations again on that magnificent book that you and Laure Marchand uh, co-authored about uh, the grey wolves and Turkey's 
um, national intelligence operations uh, overseas. And we really hope that it will be translated into English very soon. We hope so. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you and Happy New Year. And this brings us to the end of this week's episode of On the Middle East. I hope you found my conversation with Guillaume to be interesting and that you'll tune in again next week for another interesting episode of On the Middle East. I'm wishing you all a fantastic new year. Stay safe and speak to you soon. Bye.